All right. It's good to be together. And it's especially good to worship the, the, the Lord Jesus together. And it's good to open our Bibles, which I'll have you do now. We launched our series in the Gospel of Luke on Sunday, October 14th. 2018. That's a long time ago, okay? Two years, eight months, three weeks, and about 10 minutes, we launched, we launched our series in Luke. Since that time, our church has navigated a global pandemic, an election year, wildfires, and a bunch of other things, right? Since we launched our study in Luke. Since we launched our study in Luke, there are people in our church who met, fell in love, got married, and had a baby, all since we launched our study in Luke. That's very efficient time management, by the way. Okay, by my count, almost 30 babies have been born in our church since we launched Luke. So I never need to preach a sermon on be fruitful and multiply. You've got that down, River West. Yes. Since we launched the Gospel of Luke, almost 75 people have been baptized in our church. Isn't that great? And all along the way, Luke, his gospel has functioned like rebar that has just held our church to the center. I'm, I'm going to be most sincere when I say to you, it has been an immense privilege to study this account, Luke's account, to sit at the feet of the physician, Luke and watch as he shows us how compelling, how beautiful, how masterful, how wise, how profound Jesus Christ is. His teaching, his actions, his miracles, his love, his death, his resurrection. It's actually with a sweet sadness that I land the plane today in the Gospel of Luke. And I want you to know that on Monday morning as I read the last text, text we'll look at today, the end of chapter 24. The, I read it through prayerfully. I was, actually was on my knees reading it. And when I finished reading it one time through, I knew immediately what the Lord wanted me to talk about this morning. We need to talk this morning in our last sermon in the Gospel of Luke. We need to talk about the constant threat in the church to lose sight of our mission. The threat is always before us to lose sight of the mission that Jesus gives. It's what business gurus call mission drift. Have you ever heard that phrase, mission drift? Mission drift happens when an organization begins to diverge away from its original mission statement. And it's always a threat. For example, did you know that in 1636, a well-known university was founded in our country under the following mission statement? Listen to this. To be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies at this university is to know God and Jesus Christ. Anyone want to take a guess what university that was? Harvard. That, my friends, is an example of mission drift, okay? <laughs> mission drift, right? Mission drift. It's very real. In their book, Mission Drift, authors Peter Greer and Chris Horst describe being mission true 
staying on mission, the original mission, if it's good and right, if it comes from something outside of yourself. To be mission true means you know why you exist and you protect your core values at all costs. You remain faithful to what you believe God has entrusted you to do. And they list reasons why an organization like a church might begin to drift away. They talk about sometimes an organization drifts away because the leader never talks about mission drift, right? If, if the leaders never talk about it, the assumption is, well, we would never drift from our mission. So here I am, check, talking about mission drift. But there's other reasons why a church might drift from their mission. If the church has a mission statement, but it's only a sentence on the website, the leadership knows what the mission is, but, the, the, but the, the, the people, the real people of the organization either don't know what the mission is or they're not personally committed to the mission. It takes the entire church body to carry out the mission of Jesus, not just the leaders, not just the teachers. Sometimes mission drift happens when people elevate secondary issues to the place of primary issues and then divide over them. When a church still bears the wounds of division, they tend to retreat to a posture of defensiveness and protection, and you drift. In the passage we're gonna look at this morning, the risen Lord Jesus is gonna enter a locked room for one final conversation with the very first gathering of the church and he's gonna give them a mission. And what I want to do, I'm gonna read this passage now to you and here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. Look not just for what Jesus says, what I want you to notice today is what Jesus is doing to equip the followers of Jesus to stay on mission, to stay on mission. Will you look at it with me? Luke 24. Verses 36 to 49. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still believed for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, all four gospel accounts give us some version of Jesus's final marching orders, all four. So we know it's critical. 
The classic one you're probably most used to is Matthew. Matthew's great commission is the most direct. And many of you have heard it, you might have it memorized. All authority in heaven and on earth given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching to observe all that I've commanded. There it is. But John has a great commission. And in typical John fashion, it's very philosophical and very theological. John said, John said, uh, even the, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. There's John's version. But Luke's is different. And maybe you already saw it. See, Luke focuses on what Jesus does. His action, he's talking for sure. But what's really interesting in Luke's account is all the things Jesus is doing to make sure that the church never drifts away from their mission. What do they need? I think Jesus gives these early disciples three essentials, three things they must have in order to stay on mission. And the three are this, and you've already seen this. Conviction, illumination, and power. We just write those down somewhere. Conviction, illumination, and power. Conviction about his actual bodily resurrection. Illumination about the full meaning of scripture. We have another Bible study happening here. And power from an outside source to stay on mission. So I chose the word conviction because Jesus goes out of his way to convince his disciples that the resurrection is bodily. It's physical. They needed to know this. I chose the word illumination because Luke tells us that Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. We're going to talk about that. And I chose the word power because Jesus said to them, don't leave the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And remember, we're meant to get into the room. So this is for us. This is for River West 2021. And not just for us as a family, my friends, this is for you, an individual follower of Jesus. I'm gonna walk through those words, conviction, illumination, and power. And I'm gonna ask you this morning to reflect Okay, my life, my life as a follower of Jesus. How, how, how is this going in my life? Because I need to be on mission. So let's start with conviction. Jesus knew, think about this. Jesus knew that if the disciples left that room that night with a fuzzy conviction about the resurrection, the mission would sputter and die. He knew it. If they walked out of that room with even the tiniest bit of mist in their minds, about the actual bodily resurrection, the mission would drift away and sputter and die. This is why he goes out of his way. Isn't it interesting? He goes out of his way to convince them. No, no, no. This is an actual physical body that's been raised from the dead. Did you see that? Look at verse 39. He says, touch me and see. He literally invites them to touch him. And we know from John's account that Thomas got the 
touch Christ's body. We'll talk about this more later. Thomas got to stick his finger inside of the hole, the wound in the side of his waist and the holes in his hands from the cross. He's going out of his way. A spirit does not have flesh and bones, Jesus said. He says to them, do you have any fish and chips? Okay, I'll eat something in front of you. Jesus is not hungry in this moment. He's eating in front of them as an evidence. Ghosts can't eat. And what's odd about this scene is that we know that the disciples already believed in the resurrection. They already believed that Jesus was risen. Do you remember this? Look back up real quick in the, in the text before last, we, we got it last Sunday. Look at verse 33 of Luke 24. This is the, the two on the road to Emmaus. They've run back to Jerusalem. They rose, they returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together. And the 11 were saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. They already believed in the resurrection, but for some reason in this moment, when the, when the actual physical resurrected Lord Jesus enters the room, they are frightened, startled, confused, troubled, and they even begin to doubt again. And there's a lesson in this. And the lesson is simple. It goes like this. Sometimes belief in the awesome claims of the gospel, it's more like a dial than a switch, okay? Just think about this. You very rarely just go from off to on, from disbelieving something amazing about the truth of Jesus to you suddenly just accept every claim of the Christian faith. Often it happens over time, like Jesus turning on the dial of faith. And that's okay. We talked about this last Sunday. Remember last Sunday we talked about skepticism, how skepticism and wrestling with the claims of Christianity is actually very healthy. It should happen. But I talked last Sunday, and if you missed this, go back and listen. I said there's a difference, though, between skepticism and cynicism. Cynicism is not the same thing. So skeptics remain open. They, they're, they're open to evidence. God does not expect us to blindly just believe without thinking. He's given us brains. He's given us cognitive faculties. But you need to be careful. Because of our sinfulness, we can take that to an excess and we can demand from God unreasonable proof for things that he's already demonstrated clearly. And so you, you want to make sure that I'm, not, that I'm not just becoming rigid and a cynic. There, there's a faith part of this where I say, God, you've provided really strong evidence and it's time for me to go all in. And that's what Jesus does in this moment. He knows they, they cannot walk out of this room with some fuzziness about the resurrection. And friends, can I tell you something? Neither can you. Neither can you. Okay, but now let me tell you why. Here's, here's the second lesson. The historic bodily resurrection of Jesus is not just an accessory to the gospel. It's critical. Let me say that again, because you may not have ever heard this. The historic 
bodily resurrection of Jesus is not just an accessory to the gospel, it is critical. Take away the bodily resurrection of Jesus and there's no more good news. The gospel gets gutted. And not only that, there's no more reason to be on mission for Jesus. And Jesus knew it. I can say this another way. If you aren't convinced about the bodily resurrection of Jesus, it's very unlikely that you will live your life in this world opening your mouth and giving witness to the beauty of Jesus. It's unlikely. Because what's the good news? I wanna put a, a little screen up here and I'm gonna give you there are th at least three reasons why the bodily resurrection of Jesus is critical, all right? And there's probably dozens. I'm gonna just give you very briefly the three that I think are the most important, okay? You're gonna have to think with me a little bit here this morning. This is deep stuff. Here's the reason number one. It demonstrates his complete victory over sin. Complete victory over sin. Sin has not just caused spiritual death in our world, it's caused physical death. If Jesus only conquered spiritual death, he did not fully conquer sin. If Jesus only rose in a spiritual, metaphorical sense, that leaves a very significant aspect of the death of sin, and it's the physical death. We need a Savior who walks out of the tomb in a new resurrection body in order for the good news to be good news. Here's the second reason. It demonstrates God's purpose for humanity. As people created in the image of God, women and men, we were created to give glory to God and we give glory to God in this world, not just through who we are spiritually, but through our actual material bodies. Being an image bearer means having a material body. So Christianity does not have a low view of the body or material things. It's not some form of Gnosticism where the soul's constantly trying to escape your body. Christianity takes spiritual and physical and blends them together and says, it's all good, but it's all been warped by sin. This is why Jesus, this is the reason for the incarnation, Jesus coming to take spirit and body, bring them together, die for sin, rise again in a material body. And this is why you as a follower of Jesus know that you have the hope of a future physical resurrection where you'll receive a new physical resurrected body that is just like Christ in many ways. Paul says he's like the first fruits of the resurrection. Take away the bodily resurrection of Jesus, all of that is gone. And then here's the third reason, the most important reason. It demonstrates, the, the, the bodily resurrection of Jesus demonstrates the completed work of redemption. This is critical. Did you notice when Jesus appeared in the room, he said, he, he showed, Luke says he showed them his hands and his feet. Have you ever wondered why he did that? He didn't show them his knees and his toes. Okay, because those body parts are important. What was happening in his hands and his feet? The wounds or the nails pierced him to a cross. Did you know that for all eternity, 
Jesus, the risen Lord, will be the one resurrected body who will carry around scars. You won't. When you receive your new resurrection body, any ailments, any scars, any brokenness, any, anything, that, anything that represents the sin and brokenness of our world will be gone. There's one resurrected person who will carry for all eternity scars. And it's because those scars prove that the same Jesus who was with them there in that room, the resurrected Jesus, is the Jesus who hung on a cross to pay for human sin. And the disciples needed to see the connection and realize redemption is completed. And my friends, Jesus knew, if they walk out of this room and they don't, and they don't get this, they will, they will not open their mouths and give witness to these truths. And neither will you. Neither will you. I just, I'm, I'm saying this because I, I have a feeling there are some who've been wrestling and it's almost like today is the day for you to go, you know what? I'm stepping out of my skepticism now and I'm stepping into faith and I'm gonna, I'm gonna become a proclaimer like those disciples. God wants that for you. So conviction, but number two, illumination. Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the purpose of the church in God's divine plan of redemption. According to the scriptures, he needed to open their minds so they could understand. The scriptures have been talking about the purpose of the church, our mission. We don't get to invent our mission, River West. The church does not get to make up our mission. It's already been fixed for us in God's word. Uh, in my years as a pastor, I've come across some really clever church mission statements, really snappy, you know, really inventive. There's all kinds of great mission statements. You can go on the web and, and, and see a lot of them. Here's a couple that I, I've, I've found. Here's one. This is a church in Dallas, Texas. We are the voice and the hand that encourages people to change their lives with hope, comfort, and peace. That's not a very good mission statement. Okay. That's not very close to the Great Commission. We're, we're here to encourage people to change their lives. That's not really the mission of the church, all right? It sounds neat. Here's another one. We are here to be a global and highly trusted model of relevant and innovative evangelism. I don't think so. That's, I don't think so. Some mission statements are really short. Here's a four-word one. Making new, making great. Not really. Here's an unnecessarily long one. First Covenant Church of Pittsburgh exists for the passion and purpose of inspiring, discipling, equipping, and sending out Christ followers with the destiny of transforming the world to the glory of God, the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, and fostering a graceful yet convicting church environment in which people of all faith experiences and backgrounds are molded into the image and reflection of Christ. Together, creating a God-honoring community of authentic worship. This was a mission statement created in committee. Amen? It took a committee to make that, all right? But here's the thing, we don't get to create our mission statement because it's already been given to us in the word. The disciples were not innovators. They weren't brilliant philosophers. They weren't spiritual gurus who made up a new religion to twist people and lead them astray. They were witnesses of something God had done. 
And not only that, you don't get to make up your own mission statement. I had a friend in the church many years ago who he, he came up with a new mission statement every year for his life, which is a cool, a cool idea. He was one of these guys who would always talk about himself in the third person too. So we would have dinner and he would say, Dave's got a new mission statement. I was like, bring it on, share it with me, okay? Which is, which is wonderful. But here's the thing. You don't need to make up a mission statement for your life. Do you know why? Because you already have one. If you're a follower of Jesus, your mission is to be a witness to the risen Lord Jesus in this world. And Jesus said, I need them to see this in the scriptures though. Will you look with me now? This is so interesting. Look at verse 45. Jesus had to open their minds to understand the scriptures. Isn't that interesting? He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I'm gonna read the rest in just a minute. Do you know what that tells me? That tells me that human beings can never fully grasp the deepest meaning of the Bible without divine help. We're not able to do it on our own. This is why I chose the word illumination because that is the word that, that theologians use to describe light being shed from God, a divine illumination. We need help. We need God to flip on the lights while we're reading the Bible. Now, you can always see the surface level. Anyone can read the Bible. It's clear. It makes sense. You can understand the basic arguments usually. Believers, non-believers have studied the scriptures and it's clear. But what you can't do is you can't go beneath the surface and begin to perceive this deepest meaning of the scriptures where Christ is being glorified. That is something that is a gift of God. So we use the word illumination. Have you ever been reading the Bible? You, you read a passage and you, and you read something and you stop and you say, I'm almost positive that there is something really deep going on here and I'm only getting at the surface. Okay. That happens to me all the time. I read it and I think I need some divine help right now. That's why one of my favorite prayers that I pray, I'm gonna put this verse on the screen because I want you to start praying this. Psalm 119, I pray this every time right before I read the Bible. Have you ever thought about doing this? Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. That's open my eyes. That's the word illumination. It just means I'm about to read God's word. Do you want to make sure when you're reading God's word that you understand every single thing that's happening? Fall on your knees first, pray that prayer, and then start reading your Bible. And that's a prayer God loves to answer. Amen? God, help me. Help me to understand your word. Pray it. So he opened their minds. And here's what happens next, verse 46. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. We already know this from last Sunday. The scriptures have been prophesying over and over and over. The Messiah will suffer, the Messiah will die, but also the Messiah will be raised from the dead on the third day. Scripture has been prophesying this from Genesis to Malachi. But then Jesus adds something else here. Now look at this. So not just that, 
It's been written that the Christ would suffer, that the Christ would rise. But look at verse 47. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. So we read fast. Has the scripture prophesied that, that, a, that a son of God would come and die on a cross? Yes. Have the scriptures prophesied that, that, a, that a son of God would rise from the dead in power? Yes. Have the scriptures prophesied that a group of witnesses that comes to be known as the church would spread out into the world as witnesses and proclaim this truth until the, every tribe, tongue, nation hears the good news of the gospel? Have the scriptures prophesied that? The answer is Absolutely, yes. Can I tell you something? When you go into your pocket of the world and you open your mouth and you give witness to what Jesus has done in your life, do you know what you're doing? You're fulfilling the promises of scripture. God predicted that that would happen. And God is with you when you do it. And that's your mission brothers and sisters. That's my mission. This is our mission, to open our mouths. Jesus said to them, you are witnesses to these things. Your job is to just witness to what Jesus has done in your life. But you cannot do it in your own power. And that brings me finally to the last word, power. And verse 49, power. Jesus warned his disciples, don't try to accomplish anything for God without divine help from the Holy Spirit. You cannot do this on your own. Verse 49, he, he said, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. And you know, if you read Luke, if you read Acts, which is what Luke wrote next, that same concept gets repeated. Jesus said, don't leave the city. Stay in Jerusalem. Something amazing is going to happen, which we later come to know as Pentecost. But the, the, the point is Jesus is saying, you cannot do this on your own. The mission that Jesus has given us cannot be accomplished using merely human resources. Or to put it in modern vernacular, don't try this at home, all right? Don't try this at home. Remember that? Don't do this on your own. I love what Spurgeon said. Spurgeon said, all that you do will have to be undone unless it is done in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you do anything on your own power, it will almost certainly have to be undone. Some of my favorite verses in the New Testament are verses where the Apostle Paul writes and he asks churches to pray for him. This is why if you know me at all, you know I ask you all the time, will you pray for me? Please pray for me. Right before I walked in here, I grabbed my, my, my brother Steve and I just said, Steve, will you just pray for me before I walk up there? I love this. Okay, think about this. Paul, eloquent, brilliant, confident, bordering on arrogant, <laughs> right? Paul wrote to the Ephesians and at the end of the book of Ephesians, he begged them, please pray for me that I will have the boldness to proclaim Christ. I've read that so many times and thought, why would Paul need boldness? I mean, there, if there was a bold person, it's because he knew I need the Holy Spirit to accomplish my mission. 
In Colossians, he, he said to the Colossians, will you please pray for me that I'll make the gospel clear? He wanted clarity. Can you imagine that? Paul was so clear. He was a lawyer. He wrote like a lawyer. And here he is saying, I need prayer. I need the Holy Spirit to help me so that when I open my mouth, I'll be clear and I'll be bold. And so do I. And so do you. And what I want to do now, and I'm going to close here, I want to just be super personal with you. I'm, I'm going to talk now to you and you alone. Okay? Please, this is for you. God is not calling you to do anything on your own. He's with you. You have his Holy Spirit. God is not calling you to be a salesman for Jesus, okay, or a saleswoman. You don't have to become a brilliant sales pitch giver. No one ever comes to Christ after an amazing sales pitch, okay? God's not calling you to be a great debater, really good arguer. No one has ever come to Christ after they lose the argument. No one comes to Christ after they lose the argument. They're typically annoyed and they don't want to talk to you anymore. You don't have to be a great arguer. You don't have to be a great saleswoman. All you have to do in your life by the power of the Spirit is open your mouth and talk about what Jesus has done for you. And that's the mission. That's the mission. Today's a new day in the life of River West Church. It's a new day. I believe this with all my heart. God's doing something new. I hear people say this to me all the time. God is doing something new. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. And I am too. And you know what? We're not gonna drift from our, our mission. Amen? We're not gonna drift. We're gonna be people who serve and worship Jesus with the kind of joy that Luke ends with. So I'm just gonna read this last paragraph. Look at it with me. The very last words of Luke. Here we go. We're ending the Luke series. Two years, eight months, three weeks, and 39 minutes. Here's the end of the gospel. Jesus led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and we're continually in the temple, blessing God. There it is, the gospel of Luke. Will you pray with me? Bow your heads. That's us, Lord. Jesus, right before you ascended, when you left your disciples and they went back and they waited for power, with joy in their hearts and they worshiped you nonstop in the temple. That's us. That's the kind of people we want to be. Joyful, worshipful, faith-filled witnesses convinced of the claims of the gospel who love your word and read it with a desperate dependence on your Holy Spirit and who walk around in this world empowered by your spirit. Help us to do it, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen.